0: running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues
1: podcast. This week on our panel, we have David Richards. Hello.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Aaron Sumner. Aaron, do you want to say hello? Yeah, hi. We haven't had you on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick?
2: Sure. Um, I'm a longtime Ruby developer, uh, mostly Rails. Uh, I've been writing in a blog called Everyday Rails since sometime in 2010. And I think most people know me for a book about testing Rails with RSpec that spun out of that blog. Nice. Yeah,
1: we have we had you on, or we're having you on, um, because I ran across one of your articles about replacing RSpec controller tests and things like that. Um, do you want to just kind of give the impetus to that, and then we can start talking about sort of the blend between not testing controllers but testing controllers and moving stuff out of controllers?
2: Yeah. So um, the the blog post in particular was. There were two in the series before that that were about a year earlier, and it was right after uh, Rails 5.0 got announced. And there was the uh, part of that announcement was that controller tests were going away. Um, not in those Yay. terms, but yeah. But uh, so if controller tests are going away, how do you test your controller code? And so I just started a couple of options to basically go higher up. So um Using our spec terminology at the time, like a feature spec that would go through the uh, um, that, would, that would go through the browser, or a request spec that would test like API levels, so a little bit closer to the controller code without the browser UI details. And um, one of the comments that came out of that was, um, "But a controller test is the only way I can reliably test my code and my." kind of flip comment at the time was, your code might be in the wrong place then. And uh, I just kind of left it at that and then revisited it because I I noticed that, you know, I don't like write a controller tests that much either and uh, had found myself moving away from it and just taking some time to figure out what I was doing differently. And uh, is that it was a good, a good pattern to follow going forward. And uh, so, yeah, the the blog post that came out of that was there are a lot of different ways to uh, a lot of places to put code that gets run from a controller, a lot of different ways to test it. Uh, Here's kind of a high level look at it um, just from different places you can put that code and move it out of controllers and then going from there.
1: Yeah, I mean... One of the things that I just always hated about controller tests myself was that, A, I never wrote them. And so I felt guilty for not writing them. And B, you know, I would write the the unit tests because those are typically pretty easy, pretty approachable, pretty straightforward to write. And then I would write end-to-end tests on the stuff that I really cared about. And that would be a blend of what you've called feature tests in your blog articles with Copybara. And, um, you know, using something maybe a little bit more heavy-handed like Selenium on stuff that I just absolutely wanted to know. um, I spin up a server and I bang on it and it does all the right stuff. And, And so, you know, the stuff in the controller would just get tested as part of the overall run and not, you know, tested on its face. You know, the other ones that drive me nuts are like the routing tests and stuff. It's like, you know what? I can look at my routing file and for the most part decide whether or not it's going to the right controller. And the end-to-end test will exercise that too. But I always felt guilty for not writing them because they were there. And so, yeah, that made me happy. I'm like, they're
2: gone! Yeah, and so there's not a timeline for it. Uh, they're soft deprecated. There are a couple pieces in particular that have been extracted to a compatibility gem. Uh, to be honest, I haven't looked at its Jim spec to see if there are any uh, uh, version dependencies that aren't going to get updated at some point, but uh, yeah, soft deprecation is still you know if, if you're really dependent on controller tests, um, maybe start looking at other ways to test that code, and if you feel guilty about not writing them, then it seems like you're getting a, you're getting a pass.
1: Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So you, we talked a bit about, you know, them getting rid of those, and, and I kind of alluded to some of the solutions you put forward. But if you're not writing controller tests, yeah, what are you writing? How do you approach do you, that?
2: So the the pattern that I took is, is kind of what you just described, where I started moving a lot more toward uh, higher-level tests. So browser testing through Capybara, uh, testing against APIs, stuff like that. And... That works, and it 's a good way to get test coverage relatively quickly, but it can also start to slow down your test suite if every little thing that 's how you're testing it so um, getting down towards lower level tests, more unit test oriented coverage is a great way to start getting more coverage that isn't going to be such a a lot of so much overhead to get set up and run. So that's what kind of led to this part three blog post was if we're going that route, what's the best way to make sure that that code that's in controllers still is, is getting uh, the coverage it needs? And the answer that, that I came, came out with was get the code out of the controllers and then test it more isolation.
1: That's interesting because I think a lot of times our knee jerk reaction is, yeah. how do I do the same thing I've been doing somewhere else? And so, and so yeah. So, how, anyway, I, I think that I, I just find that interesting. And David is really the deep thinker on the show. So I'm going to let him come in with the yeah, but, or maybe deeply agree. I don't know.
3: <laughs> well, I'm just the un, un, uh, undisciplined thinker. So I'll come from a different perspective sometimes. But um, what I've liked about service objects and, and te- is the testing specifically. Um, you know, people think about object oriented purity or what should be, but but I like to approach a project with um, I understand what I'm trying to get, and I want to take some time thinking just about what the the customer gets from me. You know, what could ha- go wrong? What do they get from me? And how do I know that I'm doing something of value? So in general, I'm always. For service objects, um, I was just—I've known um, a lot of people don't like them, <laughs> and and I'm trying to understand why. I've been looking at Abdi's um, argument against it a little bit, and maybe you guys can comment on that, and we can talk about reasons not to. But I'm—I I have to have a pretty good reason not to use them before I before I hang them up. Right, so
1: this is the part where we're talking about moving functionality out of the controller and testing it someplace else, right? And so you set up the service object so that you can do that. Um, Yes. Now, do you sorry, I I, I, testability? Yeah, you kind of jumped ahead, but that's fine.
3: So pulling the, for me, the the hard part about a controller having a lot of business logic in it is um, I have to go through the HTTP stack to go and take a look. Is it working? And um, that's a lot of repetitive hitting from the outside in trying to see if the controller is behaving the way I thought it should. And that's, well, it feels dirty and it's slow. And, um, and I end up spending a lot of time thinking about, um, what's off. And, um, you know, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about the wrong parts. I'm thinking about the, the controller instead of thinking about the business logic. And that, that, that confuses me.
2: Yeah. I, I, uh, I think we're on the same page there. Cause I, that, that's how I started to get to this myself was I've got this this relatively concrete piece of business logic that maybe doesn't make total sense at first, but as requirements become more clear, it, it makes more and more sense. And at a certain point, uh, what I found was... Yeah, to to test all those different things, uh, even at, as a in a controller test, not even as an integration test, there's still a lot of overhead of of going through um, that controller at some point to test little isolated bits of of that logic. So uh, extracting it into something and uh, I won't say "service object" or whatever you want to call it, because you know that, that that's a separate part of this conversation, I think, uh, but getting it into something that I can not just test more easily with different uh, permutations, but reason about um, out, outside of the context of. The, the the whole MVC structure of my app uh, was the big win for me.
1: That makes sense. I think the place that I really get hung up with service objects or, you know, some other place to execute stuff. And I remember way back in the day, the mantra was uh, skinny controllers, flat, fat models. And so it was move it into the model. But the model, I I, I never really liked that either. And when I was new at Rails, it, it was mostly just... Uh, I get confused here because there's so much going on. And I figured out later that, yeah, that's kind of a smell and uh, that, you know, I should be looking for another place to put things. And I'll I'll say that for the most part then where a lot of this wound up was then on queues. And so it would wind up in some processing job was my form of a service object, right? It's like, oh, well, it doesn't have to happen right away. And it's kind of a a side, uh, you know, if if the main app is the motorcycle, it's kind of the sidecar. And so it kind of work. you know, it, it it's part of the, the thing overall, but it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to be like a major part of the app. Um, but even that never felt quite right for some of the stuff that I was looking at. And so, yeah, anyway, this is a long way of basically saying that I look at the service objects and I definitely, you know, we're talking about Avdi's post. I definitely see his point where if you're creating a service object for every, uh, weirdo, offside thing that you have to do, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I mean, it makes it approachable for, uh, for testing, maybe. But, I mean, in his example, I didn't even like where he wound up either, you know, because he kind of created a global service object, which to me feels like a junk drawer. And then um, it had a process IPN method on it that took the parameters from the request anyway. So it's like, Okay, good for us. Um it's doing everything except for rendering the template. You know, so it's essentially just a controller that the controller calls. It just doesn't do the routing and it doesn't render the template. So what's the point, right? What well, what am I getting from this? Um and so yeah, so I'm I'm kind of looking at this from a couple of different places and saying, "All right, how do we arrange this, right? How do how do we put these into uh service objects or, you know, um processing units of whatever kind that make a lot of sense because um, yeah I don't want a global junk drawer hand at the params kind of thing but you know I, I don't know that I necessarily need a new service op- object for every extra thing that I need to do either if that makes sense
3: yeah what, one thing I like and, and maybe you guys disagree but using a service object inside of a controller I tend to have code in the controller that handles the interface that says i know what i'm going to receive or what's valid and i know what i'm going to give back or what's valid and that that's what the controller is about and then it can pass in to a service object if it needs to so i like splitting the params out of the out of the service object not because it's like the one right way but that it helps my brain Um, Like, okay, I can think about interface over here and then let me come over to this other place and work on on what the business logic should be. And then the thing I like about service objects themselves, um, at least the experience that I've had with them, I've written, I think, at least a thousand service objects at this point for lots of domains. And at this point, I feel like what happens to me is I'll write the object and work with it and test it and feel good about it and then after i get a lot of them i start to reason about the business logic differently in other words by having them out separate in the in the app um i start to see that where i didn't see it before you know and so by you know what by whatever means having more confidence and more clarity is is a really nice side effect and and i think that that's maybe a little bit Weasley cuz i'm not saying you should use service objects but i like having the side effect of, Hey, I, I'm starting to think about this differently. I'm starting to see the flows, the repetitive parts, the parts that I could probably do better, the things that I might've left out. Um, and I'm thinking about the interface as a separate type of a problem to solve. And, um, so at least I like the, the mental process I go through when I'm working that way. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. It, it seems to me like that, that mental process, um, whether you agree with Obvi's approach or don't uh you can still follow it to a degree because you're you're starting to pull that out from from the controller or maybe from within another object of some kind, whether it's you're trimming down a fat model or you've already got a service object, but it's starting to get too big um, to start to just keep pulling things down into not being small for small sake, but being smaller for, to make them easier to reason about, like, like I was talking about earlier. Um, and then I think testing comes out as a nice byproduct of that.
3: Another thing that, that reminds me, I like how you're thinking about that, because getting smaller can happen stepwise. You know, if there's no one true way, and I see I have a problem here, but I'm not quite sure how I want to solve it. Um, I can take just a little thing here, a little make a little bit of progress in the 10 minutes I'm gonna give it today. And then maybe tomorrow I'll give it another 10 minutes. And it just gradually gets better tested, better understood. I I can take a very difficult problem and break it down without having to say I have to do the whole thing and re-architect everything. Um and that's always when I get in trouble. Um I've gotten in a lot of trouble when I've tried to re-architect everything fast. And I can upset a lot of people and I can get it wrong. Um, But if I can take small steps, that helps me as a developer.
1: Yeah, one thing that I'm wondering about a little bit is, yeah, you know, you you said, well, maybe just take steps. So, you know, instead of just going and putting all of the procedural um, methods into one object, you know, maybe you have a service object for each group of types of things. So, for example, um, I'm working on an app that helps manage podcast episodes. And it's not ready yet, you know. That's why we work through a, a Google Doc when we uh, line things up with Aaron. But um, you know, I'm getting there. And so, managing certain transactions that have to happen, uh, you know, between an email server or the database or you know other parts of the process for each step of the um, the episode process, I could see moving a lot of that stuff over to a service object that's just about the episode process and then if i have some other process for sponsorships or you know some other thing i could see you know so that way it it is all grouped together and you know each part of the process is in its place you know and belongs to an object but ultimately at the end of the day um you know i don't have this big pile of methods that don't necessarily talk nicely to each other or don't mean the same thing to each other.
3: And yeah, one thing I've sense. noticed, and, and Aaron, maybe you would disagree, but um, I've noticed that when I write a service object, there's a flow to it. I mean, it is procedural. And so it's. I just kind of go in the natural order of the golden path of what could go right. And then I can look at what could go wrong and I have tests for both. And so there's just small steps. I'll usually have two or three lines in a in a method when i'm working this way and um so it's easy to test and reason about but it's also easy to say what am i depending on to to make this decision so you say you know i have to have this kind of information this stuff's already looked up um i'm in this state and so my next step in the procedure does make sense and and um so i don't have big fat things inside of the procedures as well. I have small steps inside of, inside of the service object, which also makes it easier to, to reason about it.
2: Yeah. You know, like I said, I I think that that's the big win is just starting to, if you can, if you can put more focus on what the, the little chunk of business logic is, then you start to figure those things out. Right. See, I agree.
3: I like that, too, because I mean, especially I've been looking at your book and really liking it. Congratulations, by the way. Um, I write and I know what goes into writing a book. And so that's I'm really excited. I'll um, I'll be using this. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but but I've been looking through the way you, you know, I mean, if you're thinking about this from a test, driven perspective, you you start to, I'm sure, learn a lot of things. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what it's like, not just from your career, but in writing the book of how you start seeing the code differently through this experience.
2: Um, there's, there's a, it's a good kind of full circle sort of tie back thing where the book came out of my own uh, challenges, just kind of understanding how writing tests worked. You know, I, I I read the. I got started with Rails with with the first version of the Pragmatic Programmers uh, book on Rails, and uh, there at that time there was a chapter I think towards the end on writing tests. Um, Since then, it's it's become a more integrated thing from get go. But so I knew that yeah. When I run generate model blah 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 it creates an empty test file that I know I'm supposed to do something with but I don't know what that is so I just kind of let that go for a while someday I'll get back to it and I got to a point where I uh, okay I know my application works pretty well it's been in production for several months um, and I, I get the occasional bug report and I fix it and we move on, but no test coverage yet. So, what I, the, the approach I took was if I know my application works, or I'm pretty sure my application works the way it's supposed to, then I can write tests against that. And if something doesn't go right in the test, then it's probably something wrong with my test. It's not the application code. So, it's kind of like TDD in reverse. Um, and that's how I learned to write tests. Um, I started small, which you know comes back to what we've been talking about. If you have smaller chunks of code, it's, it's easier to think about. And uh, so I said, okay, I'm just going to focus on testing my models. I just focused on that, got that down pat, and then moved on up to controllers at the time and figured that out. And then on up to integration tests and figured that out. And once I had... A decent understanding of how those all those different layers worked, I was able to flip it around and say, "Okay, now I'm going to do outside-in test-driven development. Start with a high-level spec, and then work my way down as needed."
3: So, as far as time, it sounds like that's quite a process. How long did you feel like it took you to understand the the stack well enough to to do with that to to get to the end of that little that that part of your career?
2: It's it's hard to answer that definitively uh, because the the first part of just you know writing a lot of Rails apps, um, a lot of small Rails apps, and some of them got used for real, some of them were just toys or experiments. Um, but I'd say maybe after a year of that is when I really got into let's start figuring out this whole testing thing, and then I'd say it was at least a few months but it's very deliberate um, as I was going through writing new things and going back and looking for things in my, my apps that I knew had been battle tested where places that I don't have tests yet and start to figure out how those vote. I would say it was a, a few months of just kind of getting comfortable with all the different levels of testing. And then maybe a year of really deliberately going in and saying, Oh, this this part doesn't have good coverage. I'm going to add that now, and I'm going to really think about how that coverage should look and reflect on what I know so far. And Yeah.
1: One thing that I'm wondering about is, I mean, some things are really hard to test, right? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, testing integrations with external APIs or testing my own API sometimes or sometimes testing certain forms of authentication are tricky. So, I mean, how, how do you work through that or you know are you kind of covering the more general cases?
2: So it's a little bit of both um, what I try to do with the with the parts that are expensive that I can't stub out somehow um, or 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 it's just not a good idea to stub out a lot of times um is try to write my tests so that those at more expensive tests are relatively limited in number so i don't have to run through some external service to run every scenario for my test um, maybe just one or two to test the, the happy paths and then some of the more granular detail stuff i can test with the the slow or expensive stuff um stubbed out somehow That makes sense.
0: Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android. And all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid, on average, five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says, pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter DevChat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash dev chat and enter dev chat in the how did you hear about us section.
3: I, I think I've had a similar experience too where it takes a long time to really understand the whole stack. Um, when I was learning Rails, um, I had a machine whose graphics card went out. So I just it was Linux and I just reset it to run on um, command line only. And I learned how to write and test models really, really well. <laughs> I didn't have a way to run on my laptop at the time. Uh, uh, controllers, <laughs> there was no GUI. <laughs> and so, I, but I found that 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 changed my thinking around. You know what? I, I I do like that part of it. Business logic is important, and the smaller things are easier. I feel like sometimes, even though the others important, like um, Chuck was saying, you know, some of the, uh, you know. Uh, authentication problems, some of the full stack problems. Trying to get those tested and fully grokked and feeling comfortable that I'm actually doing a good job with that is hard. And I found that too with um, training new developers or bringing somebody in on the team that doesn't have a, a testing practice. Um, that we 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 just try to start on the small. We try to make sure that hey, the unit tests are good. They understand the business logic, you know, and that they thought about what could go wrong. And at least if if we can get that far um the code seems to be pretty pretty stable um it's nice to have at least that much
2: yeah i think uh, good unit test coverage won't won't give you a fully tested application but it can go a long way and if you think about it in terms of the uh, testing pyramid there's a reason that unit tests are at the base uh, and it's wider than the rest is having that in place is a good solid foundation for Uh, getting the the rest of that pyramid built up.
1: And 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 if the rest, because, you know, you both have talked about different levels of testing and different amounts of testing and different layers of testing. And what what I'm wondering here, too, and this is something that I've debated with people and I've never really felt great about any of the answers, is at what level then are you comfortable that everything is going to work the way that you expect? I mean, a lot of people poo-poo the 100% test coverage Um, and so it's like, okay, what do I aim at then? Is it just, um, most of this stuff? You know, when you talk about, you know, stubbing out certain parts of the application that may have to talk to external services and things like that, which makes sense to me. But at the same time, you know, then I know that there's a gap there or a potential gap there, right? And so, yeah, how do you, how do you get comfortable with where your application's at as far as testing goes so that you know that, at least the critical stuff is covered and most of the other stuff is covered too.
2: Yeah, I think that's a a really valid point. Um, because it, it it is something you can you can get data on. You can run a tool like simplecov and uh see where the gaps in your in your test coverage are. It'll, it'll show you line by line of application code and say, oh, you know, this this branch of this conditional never got exercised in your test suite. And then you can look at that and make that decision. Do I need to test this at what level? Or is this something where the the overhead in either writing that test or running it uh, repeatedly so you're getting, getting that good feedback um, isn't worth it? Or maybe it's such that yeah, it is an expensive test, but it's also important, so I'm going to write it and then maybe not use it as part of the TDD feedback cycle, but as part of uh, uh, an integration level where, you know, if it is super slow, maybe you, you run it in uh, Jenkins or, or a similar tool and address uh, failures from it there rather than... Um, I'm going to I'm going to use this as part of my my TDD uh, feedback and when I do that I'd like to get feedback as quick as possible and not wait 15 seconds for a slow test to run um, so yeah it, it's a little bit of knowing what data to look at and then as you get more comfortable with the app and the the business and knowing how everything how the how the, how the two work together uh, being able to make those decisions.
3: Yeah, I like that. I like that answer. I think the only other thing that I do is, and, and I'm sure Aaron does, is we just, uh, you know, we know our app. We know our customers. We know if this goes wrong, how bad is that? You know, I like, like, okay, I, I'm pretty confident this is good. And what happens to the customer if something were to go wrong? And so anything that really ruins a customer's day, that that is worth the price, right? and then if it's like ah, they probably wouldn't notice they probably wouldn't care um then i do some testing and i run through it and i keep an eye on it but i i try to figure out where to put my time based on the customer um and and i think that projects that last a long time that that kind of thinking goes away and everything just gets better over time and it's not about that but sometimes it's about getting it out to the customer so the customer can use it um
2: to yeah, and and some sometimes that might be part of the feedback where something that you don't think is as important to test uh, turns out your customers tell you otherwise when it behaves differently than they expect, and then okay, so time to write that test and use that then to to help drive you know, whether it's a bug or you know the feature worked the way it was designed, but. Not the way customers expected it to work, so you have to adjust it, uh, but then you you start to build that test coverage there. And, you know, I, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking uh, a good concrete example of uh, maybe a test that's important but expensive would be like uh, testing against an external credit card processor, where if that fails, your business might be losing money and nobody likes that. So. Um, yeah kind of knowing what's important
3: and what's not and and it does seem too that that's that's the interesting thing um i found that sometimes the most important things they're not actually in the app but they're around the edges of an app like talking to a credit card processor or a bank or another external service where things can go wrong and and so then it's not so much maybe about the test but about the architecture of the code how do we know the state we were in how do we recover, how can we make sure we can replay it and test it, you know, you know, like make sure that if something went wrong, that we fixed it going forward. How do we see if it was right or wrong? So those edges, those are expensive edges um that I find that they're hard because they're halfway outside of the app, you know, talking to something else that has to work, that might not be available or it might change or or whatever could go wrong.
1: Yeah, but the thing is is that I find that in a lot of those cases um, if you set up some kind of procedural approach to it, right, it's if something goes wrong with payments, here's how we handle it. If something goes wrong with deployment, here's how we handle it. If we deploy a, a critical bug, here's how we handle it. And we know generally how we're going to go about attacking those problems. It simplifies a lot of that. I've, I've kind of been working, um, so I'm finishing up my how to get a job course, and my next course is going to be on, uh, systems and automation around your code and it, it goes into all of this stuff right it's here here are the five or six procedures that you're not going to write in code that you need to know and then here are all the things that you should automate through continuous deployment continuous integration and stuff like that and if you just know what those steps are we deployed a critical bug well you know what's the first step well did it corrupt any data is it easily rolled back you know do we have a backup you know, and so you you can, you set these decision points, and then somebody, even your junior developers, can walk through it and understand that. Um, and and you know, yeah, it's it's hard to test that stuff, but if you know how you're going to approach it, then you essentially at least have a troubleshooting guide. And a lot of times, that's what your tests are there for anyway. Oh crap, something broke. What broke? And then you start going in, you start looking at your tests. Oh, this test case is incorrect, or we don't have a test case for this. Let's write one. And you start to approach things and understand things that way. And so, yeah, I kind of see this all as as part of the same process, part of the same procedure for writing code. It's just that the, the tests for your code are easily codified and the rest of this comes down to the people. And that's a little bit trickier
3: sometimes. You know, and that's interesting, too. I, I've been thinking about how, like, if you have the procedures well understood so that you can handle these things, that's. That's good. It tends to be a little bit of from a business perspective, a little bit of a that's that's the pressure point for the whole company. You know, that's, you know, that's the part that we need to know that it's been thought through and done. Um, I I would just say that if there's a risk in an application, it's usually around this stuff. So it's important. But, um, you know, a few minutes of thinking ahead can help a lot.
1: So, what are you working on these days, Aaron? Is it more stuff around uh, this kind of thing, or have you kind of moved on to other topics?
2: Um, you know, to be honest, it's it's a little bit uh, freeform these days, and yet things always seem to come back to uh, tests or testing as as a driving force of what 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 can I do better in my code uh, because having well-tested code is uh, something I value as a developer. Um, so that's that's what got me thinking around this. Um, there are some things around... Um, you, you were just talking about things like deployment. Uh, what are things that I could do to improve my deployment process to make it um, not just more automatable, but the the parts that are automated have some degree of testing. And I've done a little bit of that with, like, writing a test to make sure that uh, Chef or Puppet is doing what it's supposed to do, um, things like that. Uh, you know, I, I I I work on a, a large old Rails app uh, as my full-time day job. So a lot of what I think about is... Is around that, Uh, so I think a lot about uh, you know working with ten-year-old plus Rails applications and the the challenges and opportunities that come out of that in terms of whether it's refactoring large controllers or um, just looking at such a thing as as a as a history lesson. Of you know, I listened to your. uh, Interview with uh, uh, Justin searles a couple of weeks ago, and just talking about how Rails conventions have evolved over time, and controllers are, you know, a, a, a real indicator of that. If you can look at a controller and kind of guess, oh yeah, this—I bet this was written in 2007—and get blame, and sure enough, 2007. Um, so, just thinking about things like that. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, security, particularly in in older applications where um, things that were conventions once upon a time have fallen out of favor and are now looked as looked at as possible security security vulnerabilities. Uh, so, yeah, things like that.
3: Cool. It doesn't seem to get easier, does it? Like things get older and they don't just get put on a shelf. There's always something to think about. Oh, there's security. There's new this. What? Oh, we didn't realize. And now we have the old code around that we'll have to update or yeah. think about differently.
2: You know, before I took this job, I was very much, uh, oh, this application is three years old. Time to rewrite it uh, because that's what you do. Um, but... I, I couldn't even think of rewriting this app now uh, as a single Rails app, or dozens of microservices, or however it wound up getting architected. So, and you know, that's that's not something that uh, the business I work for wants to tackle necessarily either. So, it's, because um, it's it's a good opportunity a good opportunity to. Tackle that challenge of okay, this code is what it is. It's some of it's ten, eleven, twelve years old at this point, and we need to make sure it, it continues to work and is continues to be uh, malleable to work with the new things we want to make it do. So, you know, putting on that refactoring hat and um, just going at it head on is has been. Something that i am surprised to say that I've enjoyed doing <laughs>
3: That's awesome. you know I, I think that um, my experience has been the same with you know, hey, it's three years old, it's time to rewrite it, and um, or let's let the next people rewrite it. I want to go do something new in greenfield
2: yeah, that's that's the actual answer.
3: yeah <laughs> but but I do think that that having the courage to refactor and being able to pay attention and to know that it that's a job well done. You know, here's the new functionality, and things are moving in a good direction. And being confident as I deploy code, that there's a craftsmanship to that and a clarity. And it, as far as bang for the buck, I think that that's a lot of, of value add. You know, that we don't have to go rewrite everything and do a a major effort when we can just be clear and 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 work our way stepwise into a, a better solution.
1: Well, and one thing that I see with this, as far as uh... Um, refactoring older, larger, uh, I, I guess, mature Rails apps um, is that with these tests, especially if you come at it from the feature test or the, um, you know, the the end to end test or however you want to approach it, what it really comes down to is now I have something that, as long as the path helper doesn't change, which has been pretty consistent since Rails came out. Or you know the couple of other places where you know Rails gives you a helper that may break things. I mean that's much less brittle than say controller tests where you run the upgrade and then all of a sudden all your controller tests. Oh we got to pull in the the gem that backfills this feature and how do we handle it? But then the other thing is is you have those guarantees right because um, materially your app isn't going to do that much that's different from what it currently does. And so you're you're looking at it and you're going. Hey, okay. So I need it to do keep doing what it's doing, but I, you know, I need to upgrade it so that I get all the security benefits and things like that. And so I, you know, just kind of bring it full circle on this stuff. Um, you know, there there's a value to going with whatever the current state of the art is, and there's a value to having these sorts of sanity checks in place so that you know that hey, everything's handled. We know what it's supposed to do. We know that it does it right and it's done in such a way that is not brittle
3: from one version of Rails to the next. I like to think that it's my job to be clear and thorough. And I think that's what you're saying, Chuck, is that if I'm clear and thorough, I'm good. And that's why I want to write tests. That's why I want to come up with some solution inside of my application that I can I can be clear what I can and can't do. And I'm thorough. It's 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 good. I can,
2: yep. <laughs> I can
3: hang my hat on that one.
1: Yep. And then just doing it in a way that is both clear and thorough, but also adaptable to what's going to come in the future as much as we can. Because we we can't 100% know that, but a lot of times we can be aware of what's going to come.
3: You know, that's an art I've noticed. Um, sorry if I'm cutting in here, but it's interesting because older senior developers, we tend to have a, an opinion about it. We're not necessarily right, but what stays the same and what changes is is there's an art to that and um, including people in and understanding, hey, we're doing this because I think I'm going to get a, a new feature request here, or I think that this is where things change over time. And so, you know, it's like the hidden thing that I've had a lot of people ask me, why are we doing it this way? And I realize I never explained that at least I thought I probably wasn't right, but at least I thought that these things are always going to be the same and these things are always going to be changing. And so we're going to try to build a system that, that can accommodate that.
1: Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, I was going to, um, historically, a lot of this stuff changes in the same places. You know, those are the things that they're iterating on to try and get right. And so, yeah, you know, just by saying, you know what, we're building this in this way because we want to be adaptable over here and we're making the assumptions over here that you know, that's not as likely to change. And so we can, you know, specify in a different way what's going on.
2: Yeah, that sounds like every project ever that I've I've worked on where you you make you make those guesses, you make those bets and a lot of times they pay off and a lot of times they don't. And it's just part of doing what we do, I think.
3: Yeah. You know, I, I like the idea that architecture is just lines and boxes. And so we'll put a line between things that should stay the same and, and together and things that will change on the outside of that line. And then the boxes inside that line can kind of be built away, you know, that, that okay, yeah, this is probably what I want here. Um, I just re well, I just architected uh, probably a major project for me, just for my, my own podcasting and um i I noticed that's how i was thinking about it like oh yeah these things will change so let's organize and create something this way and it just comes natural i guess after a while That, and i think also because i was thinking about okay how do i test this (laughs) and again okay that's that's how i'm going to design the the system then is it testable and and um do the stable parts get delivered and can i fix the other things later
1: Yeah, and I I love the idea of just testability, you know, going back to kind of the the topic of this episode where it's, okay, you know, this is hard to test or, you know, the, the way that we test is changing and, you know what, maybe we move stuff off to service object, maybe we move things off to something else, maybe we can move some of that logic into the model. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it makes it easier to test, it makes the code easier to approach, and I find that, testability is often a surrogate for clarity in the code and so it it really makes a lot of sense we're not just talking about you know oh we want all the feel goods with the code we do but it's also that part of you know what if if it's easily understood then it's easily tested and vice versa and there there's a relationship there that um you know just makes things really easy
2: that's a great way to put it.
3: I like that.
1: All right, well I'm going to put it, push us into pics my 2-year-old keeps hitting buttons on my computer, so.
0: <laughs> for you, the listeners of Ruby Rogues, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at lootcrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20. And it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com. Slash Ruby again. That's lootcrate.com/slash Ruby to save ten percent on any new subscription. Enter the promo code Bridge Ten for ten percent savings. David, do you want to start us off with picks?
3: Yeah, I'm in a mood these days um, where I want to kind of expand my, relax my brain, expand my brain by relaxing my brain. So I've been reading a lot of um, fiction, and um, I'm having a a lot of fun with. Um, ready Player One, so that's about to come out in a movie. Uh, probably by the time that this episode comes out, it'll be in the movie theaters. But um, I'm reading the book and enjoying that. And I recommend it. It's a good, it's a good fun book. And I, I do think that uh, relaxing the brain and having a, a well-rounded experience gives me a better, a uh, better edge as a developer.
1: Plus one, terrific, terrific book. And I, I definitely see the value of leisure. Um, I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to kind of back up your pick with another pick, um, which is another book. Incidentally, it's called the 12 week year. And one of the things that they encourage you to do as part of your 12 week year and actually have it scheduled in is a breakout block or breakout time every week. Um, you know, so they talk about different time blocks and you have like buffer blocks, which are um, basically makeup time for the stuff that you didn't get done that you planned that week. And then you've got, um, Uh, strategic blocks, which is where you work on kind of the critical stuff in your business. And then, uh, they have the breakout block. And the breakout block is where you kind of take that leisure, right? And, and you, they make you plan it in for a few hours every week. And it's, it's just kind of one of those critical bits of stuff that come into play. Um, you know, they've also got me planning my week now. So, Um, you know, the last couple of days I've actually gone and worked out every day. Um, and I've been pretty deliberate about waking up early and by early, I mean at 4am now on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I don't have a lot of choice because I have to take my dad to dialysis, but, um, you know, it kind of pushed me to on the other days of the week, get up at 4am, to just get into that rhythm and just being in that rhythm and setting yourself up so that you can get right into things and, you know run ahead with the stuff that you have going on, I'm finding is really, really critical. And so, um, you know, today I got up, took to dialysis, came home, helped the kids get to school, took them to school, went and worked out, um, you know, prepped for this episode, which I actually had scheduled for yesterday, but I had to be a little bit flexible because I had a, some other stuff come up. And, uh, you know, uh, after this, you know, I'm planning on working on the, the uh, remote conferences and things like that. And so, Anyway, um, this is all to say that, you know, planning some time and especially planning that leisure time and the strategic time are are really, really important. Um, And then the last thing that I'm going to pick is uh, the the Ruby Hack Conference, which is in Salt Lake City. Um, Now, uh, David, I don't know how familiar you are with it. Uh, Eric's talked about it a bit, Um, but I am going to be speaking at the next one. So um, I'm excited about that. I haven't spoken at a conference in, I can't remember how long, a couple of years. Um, you know, I tend to go to the conferences and interview the speakers for the shows. <laughs> is my shtick. So this will be a little bit different. Um, my my talk is on blockchain with Ruby. And uh, it, it's one of those, oh, I really want to learn about this. So I'm going to submit a talk on it. And then it got picked. And so now, you know, during in the headlights. But um, I've been having a blast the last few days. Just digging in and seeing what's, what the capabilities are with that. So, um, if you want to come hear that talk, um, I, I, I wouldn't doubt that they're streaming it and stuff too, but, uh, come out to Salt Lake. It's, it's a great place. You can meet, uh, David and Eric and I. And, uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be terrific. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and pick that conference. Um, and yeah, I'll quit rambling. Aaron, what are your picks?
2: Well, I've got, uh, two and a half. Uh, one sets up another one, if that's cool. Um, so the the half pick is uh, a repo that showed up on GitHub last week called No Code. I'll uh, find the README real quick. It says, no Code is the best way to write secure and reliable applications, write nothing, deploy nowhere. And if you look at the repo, it's got a license, a README a contributing file that says don't contribute. And yet there are thousands of issues opened already, um, a few hundred pull requests, and there, a lot of them are really funny to read through. So um, yeah, the no-code repo, but what that sets up for my real pick is something that I've been working on um, in the last couple of weeks is deleting code. Um, I've kind of got a reputation on my team as being the one who will just submit a pull request with... 40 insertions and several hundred deletions. Uh, We we talked about um, the the challenges of maintaining uh, older code bases. This is one of those things that can help you make it a lot easier where uh, the less code you have, the less code you have to maintain to keep secure, stuff like that. So yeah, deleting code is my real first pick. Um, The other one I wanted to mention is Uh, a podcast that I really like. Um, I know that programmers stereotypically don't always like sports, but it it is sports related. It's called 30 for 30. Uh, It's by ESPN. They've also got a documentary series called that, but there are the stories aren't always um, they're sports related, but they're not about nitty gritty of sports. So the most recent episode was about how the Madden football franchise came to be and how, um they really pushed the technology at the time to be able to support uh full teams on both sides That was something that they initially couldn't do so they held off for a while um and it so it, it was really interesting uh from both a, a sports fan perspective but also from a uh a programmer's perspective and you know they're not all about technology but um take a look at their Back list. There's only about ten or so episodes, um, but really interesting stories. Um, so yeah, those are my picks. Awesome.
1: awesome. Now, one last thing that I'm wondering is if people want to follow you on Twitter or GitHub or uh, you know, we found you through your blog. I mean, what what are the best places to see what you've got going on these days? Uh,
2: you know, the the blog everydayrails.com is the uh, is where I'm doing. Most of my writing, I don't write nearly as much as I used to, but where I do write, it's there. And from there, there's links to email or Twitter is Everyday Rails as well. Um, Those would be the best places.
1: Awesome. And I'm sorry, everybody, for the crying two-year-old. My my son is at a therapy assessment and uh, all of my other kids are at school and my two-year-old has a cold. So... So she's co-hosting, I guess, and uh, she, <laughs> she keeps trying to play with a half-full rock star that's on my desk with all my computer equipment, and I keep telling her to leave it alone. So anyway, um, so, so yeah, so that's what's going on. Uh, well, thank you so much, Aaron, for coming and uh, joining us.
2: You bet. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you.
1: All right. Well, we will wrap this one up, and we will catch everyone next week.
0: Thanks, bye. Bye. Take it with fewer tears. We will catch everyone with fewer tears.
1: (laughs) Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.